Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 30th, 2018, and my guest is Rodney Brooks. He is the Panasonic Professor of Robotics Emeritus at MIT. He's a robotics entrepreneur, founder, chairman, and chief technology officer of Rethink Robotics, and former director of the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and then the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Rodney, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me on. Our topic for today is artificial intelligence, AI. Based on an extremely insightful article you wrote last year for the MIT Technology Review, which we will link to, The Seven Deadly Sins of AI Predictions, and we may get into other issues as well along the way. I want to start with Amara's Law, uh, and I may be mispronouncing Amara, Amara. You write, Roy Amara was a co-founder of the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, the intellectual heart of Silicon Valley. He is best known for his adage, now referred to as Amara's Law. We tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short run and underestimate the effect in the long run. Explain. Yes, when we see some new technology, it's very surprising to us. And we immediately think of how it's going to be used. And we tend to think that it's it's, going to be quite fantastic. Uh, But in the long run, we... We sort of discount how much it's going to change the world. And I think computers are are the prime example of that. If you go back to the late 50s and early 60s and look at movies that mention computers, um, they were all powerful, going to do everything. But they were mainframes. They They were these, you know, they were built using vacuum tubes. They had the computing power of what we, you know you would find in a, a birthday card that, that plays a tune when you open it. Um, uh, t- incredibly tiny amount of computer power compared to anything in our lives today. And people were afraid that they were going to take away every job instantly. Um, the desk, uh, desk set um, with Catherine Hepburn and um, uh, Spencer Tracy was about how they were going to replace librarians in companies because lab- companies used to have you know, pre the days of Google they had librarians who'd find out stuff for the executives um, and that didn't happen right away it, it took 50 years but I think no one at that time thought that we were going to carry around the world's knowledge in our pockets which is what we all do today with our smartphones if you look at this original series of Star Trek the episodes made in the 1960s it was set three or four hundred years in the future, but their estimation of what computers would be like in that future were grossly less than what they were even in the 1990s. There were still mainframes with flashing lights, and if you ask them a question like, what's the biggest prime number, smoke started pouring out of them. As, you know, It was an impossible question. That's not at all what computers are going to be like in three or four hundred years, because it's not what computers were like just 20 years ago. So they, they underestimated you know, the progress in 400 years, was they were thinking it was way less than what actually happened in 20 years. So there's the, the um, underestimating the effect in the long run. And, um, you know, I think of all the science fiction from the uh, uh, 1960s, perhaps uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, was the most accurate in that, uh, you know, it had small screens, it had uh, 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 speech interfaces, um, the sorts of things that we now have, but most people completely underestimate the and that's, long term. And that's because, and this I assume is not just computers, they just assume that whatever we have now will just be a little bit better and better and better. They don't, they can't, of course, make the conceptual leap to a smartphone. It's just not going to, very hard to do. Yeah, and I think we see that, you know, this overestimation in the short term, uh, underestimated in the long term now with self-driving cars. People, you know, were thinking that we were just going to have plop-in replacements for driver with cars with drivers in them and that we were going to have driverless cars by many estimates were saying 2018, 2019, 2020. Any minute. <laughs> Any minute. And, um, you know, I think it's going to not be like that at all. We, we see incredible problems with trying to deploy actual 
driverless cars. Just this last week, there was a story, driverless cars are here, they're in Tokyo now. And then when you read the details, it's a driverless taxi that makes four round trips per day on exactly the same route. Oh, and there's a person in the driver's seat just in case. Yeah. Uh, that's hardly a replacement of a, of a, toy, of a ta- uh, Tokyo taxi driver. Uh, but in the long run, um, you know, just as cars totally transformed our cities and our countryside, I think driverless cars will transform our cities again. They won't look like what they look like today uh, with driverless cars. And we can't imagine exactly what it will be. But the way we'll get there is we'll start having special areas dedicated to driverless cars where the laws are somewhat different from where we have cars with drivers. And over time, they will take over and restructure our cities in some way yet to be determined. Let's talk about that for one second, just because it's an issue that's come up many times on the program. At an episode with Benedict Evans where we mused about how those trans- what those trans- transformations might be. And, of course, as you point out, I'm sure we're, we're going to get that wrong. We're going to misunderstand what's coming. But I'm curious what you think the mix of challenges are for driverless cars. There's, you argue there's three challenges. One challenge is technology, which is advancing slowly but steadily as cars without drivers drive along and map out streets. And algorithms try to learn to deal with surprises. The second challenge you could argue is regulatory. Are the politicians and bureaucrats going to allow this to happen? And are they going to have the potentially create the infrastructure that will make them succeed if that's necessary? And I think it might be. Uh, you have to deal with the fact that there might be a world for a long time where there's some driverless cars and some not, uh, and how those are going to interface in the regulatory environment. Are we going to ban driver cars because they're too dangerous? Are we going to let that persist? All those regulatory issues. And of course, there'll be people like the taxi cab business and the uh, trucking business that will have a stake in keeping the status quo. And then the third issue I'd say is cultural, just the idea of people getting into a vehicle that doesn't have a driver um, and the norms that will have to evolve and change to deal with that. Of those three challenges, which do you see as the biggest? Are, are, are there, do you feel that they're all going to be solved? Um, they will be, but not in the, not in the plop-in replacement form. Um, uh, let me let me go to your third uh, challenge there and relate it to the second challenge, uh, the cultural norms. Um, you know, when when you pick up a uh, get a Lyft or an Uber today, uh, generally the Uber or Lyft either double parks to let you in mm-hmm. or pulls into a bus zone or somewhere that it's not legally supposed to be, and then there's a social interchange between you and the driver. Um, I always say. I always say hi, their name, because I've got that from the app, and I'm my name, so they can confirm that I'm the right person getting in the car, because a few times I've gotten in the wrong uh, car, uh, which hasn't been good. Um, uh, And so there's that interchange. And then um, as I'm driving, as we're driving, I may give and, you know, change my mind or or whatever. Now, imagine, um, you know, that in the future, uh, a mother or father wants to put their kid in a, a driverless car to take them to soccer practice. And it's a 12-year-old kid. You, yeah. know? you can imagine letting that happen. Well, now this car's driving along and it gets stuck somewhere. Um, you know, stuck and, and, and it needs some help. Is the kid allowed to tell the car what to do or change what's going on? If the kid is doing that, is the kid now, you know, in, in scare quotes, driving the car? What's the reliable environment for that? Um, uh, you know, these are questions which don't come up with a human driver, but they will come up uh, when there's no human driver there. The whole, the whole definitions of who's in charge and uh, when, it, when it should listen to a person in the car, should it listen to every, any adult? What if it's a dementia patient on their way to uh, um, adult daycare? Should it listen to them? Um, Lots and lots of edge cases, which are just going to take a long time to get solved, and there's going to be horrible, you know, incidents along the way, Perfection. which are going to, you know, really be blown up in the press. Yeah. And it's not going to be smooth sailing. And I'm, I'm not being a pessimist. You know, I'm just trying to be a realist that these things are tricky. Agreed. So we're underestimating, um, we're overestimating the effect in 
uh, the short term. In the short term, in that case, because we think it's going to be any day now. Uh, and then we're underestimating in the long run because we don't really appreciate how it's going to be transformative. Uh, in the article, you mentioned GPS, which is, I think, something people don't fully appreciate as a uh, uh, technology. I think most people, like like myself, tend to think of it as, oh, that's how I use Waze or Google Maps. But as you point out, it, it's it was gro- incredibly underestimated. So talk about talk about that. Yeah, it, it it almost got killed many many times when it was being developed for the for the U.S. military. You know, they, people didn't think it was going to be good enough to essentially. Uh, used for targeting uh, bombs and other other sorts of military uh, equipment, um, but now it is so uh, completely intertwined with our infrastructure that uh, if GPS goes down, we are going to have us some months at least of serious disruption to uh, our country, uh, and this is true of most countries. You know, our, our because we, we've got these super 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 um, accurate clocks above us, uh, you know, available at all times. Our um, electrical uh, network infrastructure uses those clocks on those GPS satellites in order to synchronize the whole grid. Um, if the GPS satellites go away, our grid is going to break, and uh, we're going to have to break up the grid very quickly into isolated subpieces and not be able to ship electricity across the country as we do. That's one, for instance, but there are uh, many, many, many um, uses of GPS. Uh, it's, you know, for instance, it's how uh, we estimate what the um, how much groundwater there is in vast swaths of the country to predict fire danger. Uh, as we've seen, fire danger is going up. Um, all sorts of uses of GPS that no one thought of have now been you know, built into our society. Can we talk and about- we are entirely dependent upon them. Can we talk about that electricity grid for a sec? Um, did I miss the science fiction movie about that? Because there could be a obvious one uh, that that dwells on somebody taking that down. I don't know how easy it is to take down the GPS system. I don't know what uh, that would involve. Uh, it's a lot of satellites, right? It's what, 30, yes, 20, but, 40? But, but, yeah, more? but, um, you know, I, uh, yeah, some, some, you know, yeah, some tens, less than a hundred. I can't remember the exact. But if one number. of them goes, are we in trouble? Or does it, we need no, all? if one of them goes, we're not. But what, what if, what if, you know, some, Adversary, yeah, that's what I'm uh, thinking. probably a non-state actor. Yep. I don't think state actors would have it in their interest to do it for their own state yep. sake. But a non-state actor gets something up there and blows one up, and the um, uh, in the orbit orbital planes they're in just fills that orbital uh, plane, which is a sphere actually, um, with with debris, and they all start conking out um, as they hit the debris. Um, that's going to be bad. Um, do we have a backup? Well, we many of the systems are now using, uh, you know, multiple because there's more than one. The Russians have their own system, and the Europeans are building their system, and so some of the uh, chips uh, will use multiple sources when available. Um, but you know, they could all go down. And by the way, GPS doesn't just run. GPS is um, uh, operated uh, out of Colorado Springs with a with a large. Don't tell. Use. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> this is well known. A large U.S. Air Force team. Um, uh, if they stopped work um, in about a week, your car GPS wouldn't know exactly what street it was on, and in two or three months, it would get the town wrong of where it is. That's how much adjustment needs to be done uh, to keep everything uh, in lockstep at the moment. So that's that's just a side note. It's just really interesting. Um, yeah. And anything but, but on, we, we totally underestimated how it was going to pervade our lives. Right, that, that, of course. That's the key point. Anything right now that's out there that you think is being underestimated in important ways? We mentioned, you mentioned driverless cars, and, but I think people have some idea what might happen there. Anything out there that you know, drones or nanotechnology or something you think is being underappreciated that you don't want to – that you can share because you've already bought the stock? Yeah, or, I, I, <laughs> I, I, t- I tend to think that um, – uh, uh, and you can see sort of megatrends driving this. I, I tend to think that uh, indoor farming uh, is going to be much bigger than people imagine right now. People are still thinking that farming is going to work like it's always worked for the last 10,000 years. And my characterization of the last 10,000 years of farming is you, you go outside, you put some seeds down, 
you you uh, watch the weather, you complain about the weather, and then uh, ultimately you harvest the crop. Um, You're lucky. With, for a number of reasons, that's uh, problematic. Uh, climate change is one of them. Um, where certain crops grow is going to grow well is going to change as climate, you know, upends things. Um, the other is that the uh, uh, it's expensive. If you look at if you look at, uh, if you look at meat production, um, that's a major contributor to CO two. Um, I, I just saw a thing recently that there. Uh, there are one point the the volume of carbon in livestock, uh, just as a measure, the volume of carbon in livestock in the world is one point six times the volume of carbon in humans, and humans have nine times the volume of carbon of all other mammals, which is incredible. Um, Where we are, we've upended the balance so much, and and meat is production is at the top. We can't continue that. So, you know, we're starting to see um, uh, synthetic meat companies, starting to see them on menus, yep. uh, synthetic meat. I think we're going to have a transformation in our, our, our whole food supply system over the next 50 years, indoor farming and um, synthetic meat. Uh, so I think people aren't, aren't seeing that uh, as much as they might. Cool. Uh, <clears throat> let's move on to the next argument we make, which is uh, – utterly fascinating to me, which is the, the dangers of treating technology as magical, which is, I love it because it's first, it's ironic, but it's, it, we all think of, of technology as the opposite of magical. Magical stuff we can't explain, and technology is this, is this mathematical, engineering, analytical uh, set of techniques that, that's the opposite of magic, but you say people often misperceive it as magical. What do you mean by that? And then you say that that it's an argument that can never be refuted. It's a faith-based argument, not a scientific argument. What do you have in mind there? Yeah, well, I, you know, I take this from Arthur C. Clarke, the great uh, science fiction writer who, by the way, invented the communication satellites and also was the consultant or, or, or also co-author on 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he's the guy who really drove the foreseeing of the computer uh, power of HAL in 2001. Uh, but he, his, he's got this... He has three laws, and his third law is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the, the argument there is that um, if, if, if it's a sufficiently advanced technology, you can't tell what its limits are. And I got to thinking about this because I would have debates with uh, uh, pundits who were saying, oh, uh, you know, we're going to have, you know, super intelligence any, any minute now. It's going to uh, you know, destroy the world, it's going to do this and it's going to do that, and I'd try and argue against it. And they tell me, oh, but you don't understand how powerful it's going to be. Well, how do those pundits know how powerful it's going to be? So, I, 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 as an example, I, I thought, well, what if, we, what, if, you know, what if we had time travel and we could bring um, Isaac Newton uh, back from the past, um, in the late 17th century, and transport him uh, to today in say, Trinity College Chapel at the University of Cambridge. Trinity College Chapel had been around for 100 years when he was at Cambridge. So we'd transport him into Trinity College Chapel uh, of today, and it would look much the same. We'd probably turn off the electric light and just have a few candles around. He'd be very comfortable. He'd feel it's, right it's at home. Comfortable. It's you know, And then you pull out an apple, and it's uh, the apple being an iPhone this time. And you show him the iPhone. Now, remember, Isaac Newton is the guy who figured out optics, firstly, uh, how light uh, through a prism is, is, turns into many colors. Now, you show him the iPhone, and you show him this iPhone screen, which is bright in the darkness with all these vibrant colors. That's something that he's never seen anything like that before. <laughs> That alone, and, and, by the way, if you just if you just left it at that, he'd be so in intrigued and happy to look at it. <laughs> yeah, but now you start using the iPhone for a few things, right? You um, you play him a movie. Make, let's make the movie a country scene of uh, of England, uh, you know, with with common animals, badgers, and you know, English animals. But it's a movie, and he can see it. And so the content is not surprising to him. The concept of a movie is certainly surprising, yeah. and that this little screen is is um, showing these creatures and the sound, you then play some music for him uh, uh, that was around at the time that he was around. So he'd know, the, he'd know the piece of music. And it's coming out of this tiny little thing. It's amazing. 
um, little tiny musicians in there somehow playing little tiny yeah. instruments. And, <laughs> and then you go on the web and you go and you can find this. You, uh, uh, you go and find his personally annotated copy of his masterpiece, Principia. Um, he, you know, he wrote Principia and in his personal copy, he then wrote in the margins all sort of notes about it. Well, you show him those pages. They're in, his copy is inside this little thing in his hand that does all this other stuff. You can show him more stuff, you know, like it counting his steps and show it, you know, the calculator and how quickly it could multiply numbers and stuff. Uh, you know, turn the camera on, turn it into a mirror for him. Um, you record him for, and play himself back. Now, what would he what would he be able to say about what are the limits on this device? <laughs> you and I know some limits. You and I know that you have to recharge it. You know, if you keep using it for a few hours, it goes dead. He certainly wouldn't think of that. You know, how could it, how could this amazing device not just keep working? You know, he he won't know what limits to put on it, what it's capable of. Um, what it's not capable of. He'll have no reference. He certainly won't be able to explain it. And if you and hired him, if you hired him to work at Apple, what an irony. If you hired Mr. Apple yes. to work at Apple, because he's the, one of the greatest minds of all time. Right? Yeah, he was an incredibly smart Probably guy. Probably the greatest, if not, maybe you could say he's the second greatest scientist of all time. But he, I, you can make the case he's the greatest. So you'd think yeah. he'd add a lot <laughs> to the, to right, the but engineering he, team, but he would add nothing. He wouldn't, but he wouldn't be able to begin to explain this thing. So when you ask him questions about what it can do and what it can't do, he has no way of knowing because it's indistinguishable from a magic device for him. And by the way, he was very interested in the occult. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, you know, and, and he was very interested in in in, in transmuting gold, uh, lead to gold. You know, maybe this device can transmute lead to gold. It can do this other magic. Why can't it do that? What are its limits? Um, so I, I think that's a good example of, you know, really smart person, show the person something sufficiently advanced, they're not going to be able to have a hypothesis of how it works and not going to be able to know its limits. And I think too many of the arguments about the future of artificial intelligence today are made by people who just assume that it can do anything. So you can't have a rational argument with them because when you say, well, it won't be able to do X, they'll say, oh, of course it will be able to do X. And it'll be able to do Y and Z also because it's going to be so Squared. Powerful. X, Y, and Z squared. Yes. To the N, actually. I, I, just exactly. want to add, I just want to add a couple of things about Isaac Newton and then I want to return to the content. But I, it was so stimulating, your, your example. One of the things that it caused me to wonder is whether Isaac Newton could get a, a five on the AP calculus exam. Now, you'd think he'd have a pretty good shot at that. My wife's an AP calculus teacher, and I think he'd do well in the class. I think he'd get a good grade, but whether he could just sit down and get a five is not – it's not obvious, which is just no, he fascinating. Might be, he might be really annoyed that we use Leibniz's as yeah, – exactly. uh, uh, um, um, You know, <laughs> symbolism rather than his. That might really annoy him. Yeah, just for listeners who don't know, Newton and Leibniz – Co get co credit to some extent for inventing calculus. Um, the other thing I have to confess this is really embarrassing, Ronnie. But I always thought Principia Mathematica uh, was just a pretentious title he gave his work. Uh, and so when I clicked through the link to actually do the to look at the manuscript as you suggested, he could were he to have a iPhone in his hand, and you can read his margin notes. You can see his actual the first edition, which is an extraordinary thing to be able to do that. You would have to teach him how to pinch on the screen, as you point out. Uh, but it turns out the whole book's written in Latin. And I just thought it was – I just assumed it was written in English with a, with a fancy title. So that was very educational <laughs> for me. Uh, embarrassing, but – No, I, that, that was the language that was used for science in, in, in the 17th century. It was, it was still Latin, yeah. So on this issue of faith-based, it's ironic because um, – returning now to the more serious content. When, when I had uh, Nick Bostrom on this program, uh, who – whose book I think is called Superintelligence. Uh, and he suggests that uh, artificial intelligence will become so smart that it will be able to fool us into trusting it even because it will understand our brains so well and our chemistry. It'll know how to manipulate us, uh, et cetera. And I suggested to him actually that this is, a, this is, a, this is a medieval religious view of God. You know, it's yeah. the, it could do anything. anything in yeah. fact, you can't, anything you think it can't do must be wrong. Because by definition, right. 
it can do anything. And so the and that's that's why I can't have arguments with with Nick and 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 Sam Harris and other people because they always resort to that little you know rhetorical flourish uh, that you know it's more powerful than I can imagine. So but they could be right. Well, uh, is any technology we've ever developed? Um, more powerful, you know, are there no limits? There are limits on humans. Um, there are limits on everything we have developed. But that's how uh, they're so going to be so smart. They're going to figure out how to get around limits. You don't, I mean, I find that yeah, incredibly well, annoying. You know, I, I, I'm I with you be, on this one. I, I would, if, 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 if 1% of what these people believe AI is capable of today, if 1% was true of what they, they believe is true today, uh, you know, I, as, a, as someone who's worked in AI for the last 40 years and led large teams, I would be so incredibly uh, wealthier than I am. Uh, you know, it, it just <laughs> makes no sense to me. I'm sorry. Well, should we, but should we be worried at all? And, and I'm going to just preface that by saying Nick Bostrom's a smart person, but I think Stephen Hawking's smarter. And when he was alive, he raised a flag about I, AI dominating humans. Elon Musk is a smart person. He's those are the three I know of. I'm sure there are more of smart people who think this is an enormous threat to humanity. Yeah. Well, first, uh, Nick, you should go and and look at his general work because his his whole work is about how everything is a threat to humanity, and AI is just one of the twenty things that he believes is a threat to humanity. He's worried about us searching for extraterrestrial life because then it will come and kill us all. He's worried about. Um, uh, research into uh, um, certain nuclear things because it will kill us all. So, uh, you know, people in AI. Well, it's good to be AI, cautious. It's good to, pick, it's good to be worried about the downside. On, 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 <laughs> yes, but he says he finds the downside in everything. That's what he does. Okay. So, um, um, you know, it's not just AI. He's not particularly more expert on AI than he is on search for extraterrestrial life, but he finds, you know, that's what he does. That's his shtick. Um, so uh, as for the others, um, and, and, and including Nick, none of these people who worry about this have ever done any work in AI itself. They've been outside. Uh, same is true of Max Tegmark. Same is true of uh, Lord Martin Rees. So why does that none matter? What are, they, what, are they, what are they missing? Besides missing the fact how that... how hard it is. Yeah, so... They, and and it, 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 that's actually my next point in that article. They make a mistake of, 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 of performance versus competence. Uh, explain. So I can explain yeah, that. go ahead. When we um, see a person uh, perform some very particular task, we have a pretty good model intrinsically built in our heads of what that means about their general competence. So... If we see a person, you know, and we, uh, you know, suppose we know that it's a uh, uh, a person who, whose first language is not English, um, and we see a person taking uh, picture after picture and writing an English caption, uh, that, that, that's a pretty good description of what's in the image. You know, uh, people play, playing frisbee in a park. Um, uh, uh, a child, this is a child on a swing. So they're writing the captions in English. Uh, we know that English is not their first language, but we then think, well, this person understands English well enough that we could have a little conversation with them in English, most likely. Um, we could uh, uh, talk to them about uh, the weather, certainly. They'd know about the weather. Um, we could um, ask them how they got here today. We could look at that, that picture of the uh, kids playing Frisbee in the park and say, how, how big is a Frisbee? And, you know, we might expect them to answer in metric. You know, it's, oh, it's about 30 centimeters in diameter. But we'd expect them to be able to tell us how big a Frisbee is. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd expect that if we said to them, oh, Frisbees are really tasty, they would look at us as though we were a little nut, nutty and say, what are you talking about? But when we see an AI system such as, you know, uh, Back in 2014, I think it was, when image labeling got introduced to the world in, a, in an article in the New York Times written by John Markoff with uh, a Google image labeler labeling images, kids playing Frisbee in the park, etc. Um, people, I think, uh, saw that level of competence of performance and assumed that the, the system had the same level of competence as a human who could do that work. But... The system didn't even know what a 
what a game it was, what a frisbee was. You know, you couldn't you couldn't answer any questions at all. But it certainly couldn't. You know, if you said, "Can a can a six month old play frisbee?" It wouldn't know. Um, can a person throw a frisbee three miles? It wouldn't know. Um, so I think people make that mistake, and I think these pundits have seen performance and mistake it for competence. And the AI systems we have today are only very, very narrow performance. And the analog the analog here would be the, the driverless cars that are, I forget which guest it was, I apologize to that person, but somebody pointed out in the program that they're not really driving. They're more like a train. They have a fixed track. They kind of stay on. They can't really deal with surprises, anything remotely like a human driver is doing. They're not mimicking what a human does when a human That's drives a car. That's the most important point. And, and that's your point about the photograph. If you take a photograph because it looks interesting to you and a foreigner uh, wants to talk to you about it, you speak their language somewhat, you can have a conversation about what's in the photograph. But while the, intelli- the computer might be able to label the photograph, it doesn't, quote, understand it. But isn't that – wouldn't the argument be that it, that's just a matter of time? Oh, Yes, that's the magic thing. Well, certainly we'll be able to do that soon. Well, those of us who worked in this field for as long as I have, I've, you know, the AI has been around just over 60 years and I've been working in it uh, uh, just over 40 years, um, know how hard um, each of these little steps has been and how few of the steps we have towards the superintelligence that these people talk about, how few We've just got baby steps towards it. Um, uh, you know, I, I often think that, uh, uh, you know, maybe we're building um, ladders and uh, people are seeing, oh, yeah, they're getting closer to the moon. They'll get to the moon really soon. <laughs> it's a matter of time, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it may not be just a matter of time at all. Um, it but may take hundreds of years. You know, we've had chemistry for 2,000 years, and, and there was great economic drivers of chemistry. You know, if only you could turn lead into gold, but then more generally chemistry for everyday life. It's been 2,000 years and there's still a whole lot of stuff we don't begin to understand about chemistry. Um, And so it's not, these things are not automatic. Um, Don't disillusion me, Rodney. I thought we had chemistry figured out. My son's a chemist. I'm going to tell him that he's in trouble. We've got some things figured out, but there's a whole lot. Yeah, we're going to have but, research in chemistry for a long, long time still. But I think the reason for that, some of that over-optimism, or it, I would call it inevitability, uh, which, like you, I'm a little bit skeptical about, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen. But some of that inevitability comes from the skeptics who scoffed at the early days of AI and then were forced to recant. So, Oh, you know, a um, they'll never recognize faces. A computer will never be able to recognize a face. A computer will never be able to play chess well. It's amazing, yes, that it can play chess. I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think early AI said either of those things. Um, a, a computer we, will never beat a human being in Go. I mean, Go is way too complicated. No, 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 no. <laughs> what was said was using brute brute force, brute force search will never beat beat a person in Go. Um, whether it's brute force search. Works in chess, and in fact, Alpha Zero, Alpha Go, um, don't use just brute force search. They use other techniques. Um, so I, I, I don't see. We didn't expect. We didn't know when it would happen, but we were correct in saying, uh, well, at least so far correct in saying, brute force search is not going to get you there. Uh, Alpha Alpha Go had to use other techniques. So uh, no, I, I think I think that statement is just wrong. But I think the more important point, which is what I take to be your point, and it's the point that I, as an economist, am drawn to, is that it's not happening tomorrow. Tomorrow is not going to be this quantum leap where a computer can not only solve a problem you give to it, but can figure out how to solve problems that you haven't given to it. It'll teach itself. It'll learn, not just in the sense of accumulating uh, examples and algorithms and and search paths and and branches of a decision tree, but we'll understand how to. I mean, I find it absurd, but you know, it'll eventually decide. It'll be wise. It'll understand yeah, trade offs so and and intuition. It'll have human capabilities, and then it'll use those capabilities to add even more. So even if, I don't think that's going to happen, but if I'm wrong, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in a week. 
it, it won't even happen suddenly. And the, the point I understand you're making, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I read it somewhere else, but I thought you were saying that as these things take time, we'll, we'll understand how to adapt and deal with them as human beings. Yeah, and I, you know, if, if we want to continue through my seven deadly sins, the very next one is suitcase words. And you just said, um, you know, your understanding was the computers would be able to learn how to do these things. Well, it, learn is a great suitcase word. Uh, suitcase Explain. word is, is something that Marvin Minsky, one of the founders of AI, um, came up with, where uh, it's a word that has so many different meanings packed into it. So, you know, we say... Uh, learn, you know, you learn how to walk, you learn how to ride a bike, you learn a new language, you learn your way around the new city, um, you learn ancient Latin, um, you learn calculus, but all these learnings are done in very different ways. Um, so that word learn means so many different sorts of techniques. Now, when someone in an AI system gets it to learn something new, they may put, you know, learning in the title of their paper. But these days, more likely, the, um, the uh, press office of the university, which is always looking to hype up what that university is doing, is going to um, put out a little press release about, uh, you know, our scientists at, at uh, you know, uh, XYZ University have just made a breakthrough and they have computers learning or, uh, of some sort. They use the suitcase word. Um, you know, um, we've seen a, a lot in the last year about the computers deceiving, um, uh, computers cheating, computers this. But in each of those cases, they, they use that word to describe, you know, reasonably the thing it is doing, but then packed around that is all, all the other uses of that word are not even begun to be, to be looked at. And it's a very brittle version of that word. And so these suitcase words lead people astray. You know, we, we, we've seen what's called deep learning. Um, and by the way, the deep doesn't refer to deep analysis or deep thinking. It refers to how many layers of network there are. 12 rather than three. Uh, so just that use of that word deep leads yeah, people astray. One. I like that. Um, um, so we, we see uh, uh, systems learning um, to parse out phonemes, which is why we now have um, the Amazon Echo and Google at home able to understand our speech, uh, you know, at least when I say understand, it, it sort of take dictation and turn the speech um uh, the speech uh, form into, you know, typed words uh, that correspond, which we couldn't do five years ago. Um, and that's deep learning has enabled that. But when, you, when, when people hear that that learning was able to do that sort of thing, they think, well, then the computer can, un can learn anything. And that's just not the case. It's only very isolated, uh, uh, specialized things with a lot of individual work by a big team of, of scientists to get every new step. You know, when, when uh, Alpha uh, Go, which learned to play Go, was, was playing the, the uh, World Go champion, it had 200 engineers there worrying about it, helping it, and supporting it. Cheater. And the world, the, world, the world Go champion had a cup of coffee. Uh, that was his support. Um, so it's not the same sort of stuff. But I, I, I think I, I agree with that. But I think the deeper point, which I love, and I, I love that idea of a suitcase word, and I assume it's called that because you don't know quite what's in it. It's, it's, it's right. a bit of a, of a mystery. So things into it. Uh, but what, what I think is, um, is deep there is, is it's, it, we probably won't get to it today, but you have, you have another article about consciousness and, and what robots actually perceive. And, also relating to your earlier point, we bring, we anthropomorphize, we bring our human understandings inevitably to these new technologies. And when I learn something, I can learn, say, let's say I learn how to play uh, uh, a piece on the piano with one finger playing the melody because I've learned how tablature and staff notation corresponds to a keyboard. But I can't play the piano, obviously, 
And more importantly, I can't compose. And even more importantly than that, uh, I can't fill my soul and heart and mind, whatever you want to call it, with emotion. I'm not flooded with emotion the way I would be if I could play something even fairly simple like Moonlight Sonata on my own. Or the audience is not. Or the audience, that's even much better, much better. And yet we assume that when a, a computer, quote, learns how to play the piano, we inevitably place on it these human uh, – the way I would dis- – I make a distinction between learning and understanding. So we can learn how to do something, but we, we may not understand it. And I think the – there's a certain inevitable, at least at this stage, maybe it'll change, but at this stage of, of computer learning, it does not have the richness of human learning, and yet we assume it does or at least that it will. And it, that's not necessarily the case. I, I agree with you completely. Um, uh, it, it's that – Again, that performance versus competence, it's the suitcase word. They're, they're variations on similar, similar problems. Um, the, you know, the other, another thing that, that these pundits say, you know, it's just going to get faster and faster. I think we've gotten trapped by the last uh, 50 years of Moore's Law into yep. thinking that everything is exponential. And, in, you know, because we've had exponential growth in computer power, um, which ironically has led to improvements in AI without any further thinking. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Alan Turing had the essential ideas of how a computer plays chess back in the 1940s, but he had to simulate on computers. Um, Mac Hack, uh, a program from MIT in 1965, em- embodied those ideas in a computer program, but it was easily beaten by people. And really, there weren't any particular new innovations. Uh, through the 1990s when Deep Blue beat uh, uh, Gary Kasparov, it was exactly the same algorithm that, that Turing had come up with back in the 40s. And by the Better way, processor, yeah, yeah, Gary, Gary Kasparov uh, uh, has now got a whole, um, a whole business around uh, chess playing programs, and he has reconstructed um, exactly the heuristic functions that uh, Turing suggested, and they play a pretty damn good game of chess when you've got a modern computer. He, Turing got it right in his, his, his uh, heuristic functions for limiting the search. Um, that's just an aside. But, um, you know, we tend to think everything's exponential. And so, you know, my friends who are economists or, or, or others um, uh, say, oh, but, you know, in the last five years, we've seen such a big jump in, in, uh, in uh, artificial intelligence due essentially the deep learning, um, surely, you know, it, it's going to get faster and faster now, those improvements. But what they don't realize is that the main technical ideas of, of these algorithms, deep learning, were around in the 1980s. Um, backpropagation is the technical term for how the learning applies. Um, and it was a big, there was a big buzz about backpropagation in the 1980s, and a lot of people thought it was the future. Um, but then it sort of ran up against limits, and almost everyone in the field decided, ah, you know, we didn't get it right. It must be something else. And there was just a couple of people, uh, Jeff Hinton at University of Toronto and Jan LeCun, who was um, variously at Bell Labs, University of Toronto, NYU, who kept pushing on it. And, you know, us in AI would think, oh, those guys, you know, they're just pushing away, you know, they're lost. But the, 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 there were three little innovations. One was more computer power. Uh, one was a, a better um, mathematical form of a function that's used in the, in the networks to relate the output to the input, which meant that um, technically you could figure out the derivative on the inputs by just looking at the output which was a, a smart thing to do. And the third one was something called clamping, where you um, pre-structure a, a deep network with 12 layers rather than three and, and into little segments of three layers by pre-digesting what the concepts are going to be by getting it to reproduce its, uh, uh, its input as its output, and then you let the learning go. With those three things, so suddenly, in, suddenly in hmm. 2008... Um, uh, this backpropagation learning started to work a whole lot better, and in, in a mere 10 years, it's now become the dominant approach to machine learning. 10 years after the uh, uh, 20 years of pre-work on it. So, uh, it, it, it didn't just happen. 
there was a lot of work to get there. But there were maybe a hundred similar things back in the 80s that people decided weren't going to work. And when people ask me, well, how come you didn't know deep learning was coming? Well, we couldn't <laughs> tell it from the other 99. This one popped. Maybe one of those others is going to pop someday and we'll see some, some great new applications. But we don't know which one it will be. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that a few years from now, something else will be the hottest flavor in AI. Um, uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm pretty sure that there have already been a lot of research papers written about it. But we just don't know which of the thousands and thousands of ideas that are out there are the ones that are going to work out for particular rather narrow capabilities. Well, you know, an, um, an analogy is, is I think, about human uh Longevity, you know, it just was an assumption that we're just going to live longer and longer, and then eventually we'll just have a breakthrough and we'll live to 200, which could happen again. Obviously, it could. Uh, or it's just a matter of time before we cure cancer. It's just a matter of time because we made so much progress in the early days of pharmaceuticals. And amazing things have happened over the last 50 years, but it's not It's not like Moore's Law. <laughs> it's not like yeah. every year uh, lifespan uh, doubles because uh, we figured out better and better ways to keep people alive. It just it's tr it's a trickier, much trickier problem. And in fact, in fact, most exponentials uh, are, are not exponentials forever. You know, Facebook was exponentially growing for a while, and it's sort of used up everyone in the world now. So you know, it can't exponentially going Mars, grow. Going to Mars any day now. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so, uh, and, and even Moore's law ran out, essentially, when, when the feature size got down to where you could count the number of atoms, you couldn't halve the feature size next in the next two years, which is what you needed to keep Moore's law going. It, it's run out. By the way, I think Moore's law running out has been a great service to, com to computer architecture because for 50 years, you couldn't afford to do anything but keep on the narrow path because someone else would beat you with Moore's Law. Now that you no longer have Moore's Law, we're seeing a flourishing of computer architecture yeah, for the first time in 50 years. And GPUs applied to deep learning are an example of that. Let's, let's talk about what you call Hollywood scenarios, which uh, I like to just for aesthetic reasons. Yeah, so when, 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 you, when you watch a Hollywood movie you know, uh, involving technology, um, uh, usually the world is identical to what it's being like, but one thing changes. Um, and, you know, I, I think perhaps the best movie, uh, uh, I, I think the best movie about predicting the future of, uh, of artificial intelligence is actually Bicentennial Man, you know, which is a small team movie. Um, um, it starred Robin Williams as, a, as an intelligent robot. But um, the thing I love is this family has this intelligent robot that can talk, it can, you know, cook breakfast, it can drive, it can do everything. And there it is in the kitchen at breakfast time. The mother is doing some of the cooking. The robot is doing some of the cooking. So, you know, just like the world out there. Um, and what are the kids and the, the, the father uh, the, the doing? The, 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 uh, um, the father is reading a physical newspaper. Um, the kids are reading, you know, physical pieces of paper. You know, these days the kids are on, on, on iPhones or iPads, and I certainly never read a physical newspaper. I subscribe to lots of newspapers, but I read them all online. So it was the world exactly as it is with one change, but that's not how the world really works. Lots of things change along the way. Um, and so as we get these you know, new AI systems. They get embedded in a world which has changed as part of it. So this idea that, you know, we're going to wake up to a super intelligent, an evil super intelligent uh, system, it, to me is nutty because be before we get to that, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have really, you know, um, nasty AI systems. And before that, we'll have grumpy AI systems, you know, who don't really like people. And before that, we'll just have disdainful AI systems. And we'll change the world. We'll, we won't, you know, let it go that way. Um, it's, you know, a, a great, a great example is, you know, the, of a Hollywood movie is, you know, the lone, the lone, um, the lone inventor who, you know, who suddenly comes up with uh, uh, a device that can shrink people down to the size of ants, you know, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the guy tinkering in the backyard and he comes in and he says to his, his, his wife, you know, because it's always the man tinkering and the wife, you know, long-suffering wife. He says, Martha, I accidentally built a 747 in the backyard. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it doesn't happen that way. It's not just this one thing changes. You have to have change a whole structure. And so I think that's how, you know, it's ha- it has happened right now about self-driving cars. People thought it's going to be just the same as today, except the Ubers and Lyfts are not going to have drivers. Yeah. And that's what's about to happen. No, it's much more complicated than that. Now, my favorite example, your your example of Bicentennial Man reminded me of, uh, this always drives me nuts in, in movies. Uh, I don't know if it offends you when you see it or you just laugh, but in uh, Avengers, Infinity War, the latest Avengers movie, which I was I found extremely disappointing, uh, it, there's these hordes of armies fighting hand-to-hand in hand-to-hand combat, like they're at the... Um, in medieval times, uh, you know, jousting uh, with lances on horses. It's just, it's not going to, yeah. just don't think it's going to be that way, but it makes for a good screen filled with stuff. Um, I want to I turn, your last point, why don't we get to your last point, which was deployment time. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, you know, people sort of think that because the technology is there, it's going to be deployed very soon. Uh, but deployment, um, especially when there's capital costs involved, takes a lot longer. We used to Google and Facebook rolling out new features because their marginal cost for a new feature is zero. Because every time you use Google or Facebook, you download all the code into your browser anyway. So putting some new feature in, well, the next time you download all the code into your browser, it's just a different version of the code. But if it's a physical upgrade to something, it takes a lot longer. And one of my favorite examples is the is the um, B-52. You know, they were built mostly uh, in, in 1962. Um, they're still the, it's one an of airplane. the mainstays. It's an airplane. The B-52 just is the bomber, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The B-52 is a U.S. Air Force bomber. It's still used in, you know, in, in missions today, we often see them, you know, flying uh, in in Europe or flying elsewhere where there's something going on. And there are current plans to keep them flying till 2040. They were built in 1962, and um, there's talk of extending their life to 100 years. Now, if the Air Force is using 100-year-old airplanes, that says something about how long it takes to change things. You know, they've changed the avionics, they've changed all sorts of stuff. But it just takes a long time to change things over. In manufacturing, um, manufacturing uses something called programmable logic controllers, PLCs. They were invented by a company in Bedford, Massachusetts in 1967 as a replacement for electromagnetic relays. Electromagnetic relays were, you know, essentially the, the, the technology of the uh, of Morse code and telegraph where an electromagnet, a coil of wire, magnetizes something and pulls down a switch. And that was how um, automation and control of, of factory equipment was done up till 1967. In 1967, the PLCs were a electronic and then 10 years later, a microprocessor based emulation of those electromagnetic relays. And the way you program them still with ladder logic is you um, build a virtual network of electromagnetic relays using a set of rules which make them stable. So we're using an emulation of technology from the 1950s, which was developed in the 1960s. Um, Every factory uses them. When I was writing this article, just for fun, I went online and looked at the uh, uh, Tesla um, job openings at their factory, and sure enough, they were advertising for PLC technicians. Um, uh, so get people who knew how to, you know, virtually wire up electromagnetic relays to control equipment. I talked to the major uh, supplier, the biggest supplier of PLCs um, in the world uh, uh, last summer, it was, and asked them how often they upgraded their software, and they said, we aim to do three upgrades every 20 years. Um, it's a diff- you know, it just, when you've got capital equipment, you've got things running, you don't just change stuff like Facebook and Google change it. And we sort of think, oh, it exists, it's going to get deployed. No, it takes forever to deploy it, for good reason. You've got this system running, it has to keep running. You can't afford failure. Whereas you can afford failure on your Facebook page or on your Google search. And you can't tell the difference because a person is in the, in the loop. When the person is, when no people are in the loop, it's got to work. So it just takes forever to deploy stuff. And tech, I call them tech bros, think, well, they're the stupid people. You know, we know how to do it better. 
And I am reminded of a tweet Elon Musk put out not too long ago saying, it's my fault we overestimated how easy it was going to be to automate the whole factory. Hmm. And he took, he took the blame for thinking that it was, you know, he was smarter and it was going to be easy to do it. It's not easy to do it in these, in these real systems. Deployment where physical stuff is involved takes a long, long time. Our houses last for hundreds of years. Even our, our driverful cars that we buy today are going to be around in another 20 years. People aren't going to want to give up that asset that they just spent a lot of money on today. Um, so changeover is going to take quite a while. So that prompts me to think about something, a set of matter questions, and maybe we'll close on this. Um, so much of, you know, I was prompted by your remark about that it it replicated the previous coil technology, the PCL or PLC? PLC. PLC replicated it. So, yeah. so much of our technology today, and, you know, we're living in a world that is – you know, Isaac Newton would be shocked by it, but of course, somebody from 1975 would also be pretty shocked by it. You don't have to go yeah, back yeah. so long, 1975, 1985 would be shocked by the iPhone. There, there's so many, and that's just a small thing. You know, we've got, we've got, we got a lot of things coming that we haven't talked about, maybe drones, maybe medical devices that go inside your body. There's there's going to be some some pretty cool and shocking stuff coming. A lot of it, it it's fascinating to me how much of it mimics what humans do. And one of the observations that comes to mind, I've mentioned this before on the program, uh, I think about Andrew Wiles when he solved mm-hmm. Fermat's last theorem and found out it, it was a mistaken proof. He was lionized as the greatest mathematician of, of his era. And then it turned out, oh, it's not true. <laughs> he didn't, couldn't prove it. It didn't, wasn't right. There was a mistake in the proof. And he agonized for a very long time, I think a year or so, maybe a little longer, trying to fix the proof. And then one day, it just came to him. And if you asked him, how did you do it? He, he can't tell you. And the brain, maybe there'll be a day when we understand how the brain solves problems. That day hasn't come. And what the way we solve problems now with technology is, as you point out, a sort of often a brute force version of what humans do, but not quite the same. And when we can, we just mimic what humans do. And I'll, just an obvious Example that's is uh, is the Kindle. The Kindle is just a book with in silicon. It's not a it's not a new technology. It's just words on a page. We haven't we have we have some recorded things as well. But we, you know we have the desktop. We have all these things that redo in better, faster, more reliable, sometimes less reliable because the machine crashes. Things that we did with a pencil and a paper. And I wonder if that's a lack of imagination. Is that going to change with AI at some point? Does this make any sense, or do you have, do you have any thoughts yeah, on no, it? Yeah, I, no, I think it gets back to a, um, uh, uh, you know, if you go back to uh, George Lakoff, who's actually been had a little resurgence recently. Lord George Lakoff and Mark Johnson uh, talked about 40 years ago about the metaphors we live by. Uh, much of our language is based on physical metaphor for how our bodies move around, the flow of time, um, how we tackle a problem, you know, tackle a problem, you've grabbed them. <laughs> uh, everything in our language is based really on metaphors that are our physicalness in the world. And I think we're really good at... Um, um, using those physical metaphors, and that's what permeates our um, computers and our, our, our systems. But the brain, brain, our brains and our nervous systems are not built on those same physical metaphors. Uh, and when we try to use physical metaphors and things get really complex, it, it breaks down. I think uh, quantum mechanics is a great, great example of that. People want to, well, is it a wave or is it a, a particle? You know, that's the two things they understand. No, it's an abstract algebra. Uh, but, you know, stop trying to force it into this physical metaphor of what you understand from your everyday experience. Um, and, and it's very hard for us humans to do that, which is why quantum mechanics remains this great mystery. Um, so, yes, I think we're, lim- we're very limited as human beings. And uh, that's another, uh, another reason that, um, you know, we, 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 
you would be you would be immensely surprised if you were at the beach and a robot dolphin came out of the water functioning like a an, a, an actual dolphin, and then if it let you know that it had been built by actual dolphins in the you know out out to sea. Well, maybe us humans are just like that. We can't build these AI systems. You know, maybe maybe some aliens would come and oh, look at those silly little little people. You know, at MIT, they think they're going to build something as intelligent themselves. You know, they're not smart enough. The same way we think about dolphins. Dolphins are not dexterous enough. They're not smart enough. Um, maybe we're not as smart as we like to think we are. And I think that's true of many people. We're not as smart as we like to think we are. Well, I think so much of it is uh, is that linearity that we presume, right? It's just when you say that, which I think is, um, I think it's a profound insight into human limitation. But a, a lot of people in the you're unusual. A lot of people in the field that I run into and talk to casually, and when I'm out in Palo Alto in the summers at Stanford, have an, a utopian confidence that the future is imminent and they if you press them as to why they would say well look how far we've come and uh, i often think of the nasim talib uh, uh proverb from uh, venice the venetian proverb he likes to quote that which i've mentioned recently the the farther uh, from shore the deeper the ocean and i think it's a question is how deep how deep is that ocean you know what what are the limitations if any uh you know, what I'm, what I'm kind of dancing around here, not very effectively, is that I, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of our technologies mimic primitive technologies. One reason is, is that they're culturally understandable and acceptable. Those metaphors you're talking about, they're deeply embedded in us in all kinds of ways we probably don't fully appreciate. Um, and But maybe that's a big deal, not just a small deal. You know, I look at my kids. I gave my dad – once gave my dad an MP3. My dad's 88. When he was about 78, I gave him an MP3 player preloaded with Econ Talk episodes so he could hear what I was up to. And I mailed it to him, and he called me, and I, I said, Dad, how's it going? He said, well, I can't turn it on. And it came with a manual, you know, really horrible, one of those tiny folded-up thin paper mm -hmm. manuals for cheap MP3 player. And he couldn't read the manual because nobody really reads the manual. They don't make any attempt to make it work well. But of course, my sev I, I bought one for myself, the same model, because I knew this could, ha could happen. And I, I handed it, I handed it to my seven-year-old kid, and I said, uh, you know, turn this on, without the manual, of course. And the kid, you know, he got it on in about twenty seconds by poking around and pushing things. And my dad just didn't have that, that skill set. And so you wonder, as people grow up in worlds of modern technology with new advanced stuff, maybe the metaphors will change and, and they'll be able to adapt to new things in a way that we oldsters couldn't and can't? Or is it just something about being human and the way our brains work and the way we perceive the physical world that's inevitably part of it? Yeah, I think, I think you're right there, but there's, there's two separate things going on. One is we use these physical metaphors for everything because it's what we're, we're sort of wired to understand. The other is technological adoption. You know, if you take a smartphone today and you could, you know, get, a, get someone from 30 years ago and hand it to them, they wouldn't have a clue how to use it. The reason smartphones worked when they came along in, I think it was 2007, um, the reason they worked was people had gotten used to the idea of a touchscreen because touchscreens had started to show up uh, in you know big touch screens where you selected a few things it started to show up in various uh, you know ATMs and and airports and etc but there were no touch screens in the, in the 1980s I, I first saw my very first touch screen I think at Carnegie Mellon University in a research lab in 1988 so you know things build upon stuff that is there um, the new thing that we had to learn on touchscreens was the pinch and expand uh, yeah, it's thing. Sophisticated now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the other was just touching buttons. Oh, and, and by the way, that's emulating the physical stuff. Yep, uh, it's the same thing. Um, so it it builds and it builds slowly. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, what could be 
that we can't imagine because we don't have the right metaphorical tools to deal with them. And so if we ever were to meet up with another intelligent race from some other planet, I imagine their technology would be indistinguishable from magic to us, and our technology might be indistinguishable from magic to them because it would just be different in the way we thought about things. My guest today has been Rodney Brooks. Rodney, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.